This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. The COVID-19 crisis in long-term care has been the most prominent topic of conversation this past year when our Zoomer squad got together every week. And this past Monday was no exception. For their final chat of 2020, Libby Snymer was joined by David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP and New Vision of Aging. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, was on vacation. Libby first spoke with the squad about the CARP long-term care campaign, calling on the firing of Ontario LTC Minister Marilee Fullerton, for failing to protect nursing home residents during the second wave. The campaign is actually being paused for the holidays, but the commitment to it remains. We're seeing, um, uh, it, I mean, it, there's really no good news here. You could say that there is slightly better performance because they have learned some things from the first round. Um, we don't yet know how many of these deaths were would have been preventable. But it's quite clear that the uh, problem was always going to be the, the totality of the thing. It wasn't going to be just a small little error made for a couple of weeks uh, that can quickly get fixed. And um, I think the problems of staffing, the problems of equipment, the problems of transparency, uh, how this is being communicated, have not really been made uh, significantly better. And I think we just have to... Uh, uh, hope for the best. I don't know that there's much more that, that the individual listeners can do other than uh, observe the, uh, you know, the requirements, the lockdowns, and and continue to, um, you know, watch closely what's going on. When you said we've paused our campaign, we have. We've just dialed back, you know, the rhetoric. We're not going to be running the same, uh, you know, commercials right in right into uh, Christmas and New Year's. But that doesn't mean we've stopped the campaign. On the contrary, we're getting more coverage in other media outside of uh, uh, our own channels. And uh, it's, uh, if anything, the awareness of our campaign is broadening. Okay, yeah, I guess you're just trying to be nice for the holidays. Bill, again, nice, yeah. what's your take on this new modeling, first of all? Uh, well, it's just, you know, it's, it's I, I can't remember ever go, being in the middle of a holiday season when all of us have had such mixed feeling uh, feelings. How is it possible to to feel the joy of the the season with what's uh, happening? And our you know our our campaign is showing this. We we're now just short fifteen signatures to be four thousand signatures. People haven't stopped uh, signing the. Uh, petition that says they're just so unhappy that with everything that the government and the Ministry of Long-Term Care uh, should have learned over the last nine months, yet uh, this is still still happening. And uh, it's, it's, it's disheartening. 
and it's difficult to understand why uh, there hasn't been more real action uh, taken. Why not before? Why not earlier? Why not taking these kinds of steps when they would have made some difference? David, does it seem to you that the authorities are just throwing up their hands when it comes to long-term care? I don't, I don't think so. I think that they're caught between two worlds, and I think it's the mismanagement of it that's really making everybody furious. On the one hand, there's no question they inherited uh, a bad system, an underman- a mismanaged, underfunded system. The day they took office, the problems were there that they had nothing to do with creating. And many of those solutions are indeed long-term solutions. You can't build, uh, you can't create new beds in a week. You can't, uh, you know, turn the ship around in a, in a, in a few weeks. So there, some of their long-term thinking, let's do this over time. Let's do that over time. Uh, let's increase the number of, uh, hours of care between now and 2025. That all makes sense. It's, it's not like they're doing nothing. But they've never really gotten to grips with what is the immediate crisis? How can we impact that immediate crisis? And above all, how can we communicate better what we're doing and what should be done? Uh, there's been a lot of radio silence at times that there shouldn't have been. And then when they have come out with stuff, it's been contradictory. Do this. No, no, do that. No, no, do this. And so it, it, it creates the impression of a ship uh, that nobody is, you know, quite steering. And then when you take a look at all the resources they have to work with, you wonder about the performance of those uh, those people that are in charge. I'm looking at these modeling numbers. It says no matter what we do at this point, their long-term care deaths are going to increase. So does that strike you as giving up? Uh, well, it it, uh, it does. Uh, and uh, as, as David said, there's been so much inconsistency in the way they've uh, dealt with it. And how can we accept uh, uh, an, an admittance that things are going to get worse, that we're going to have more uh, deaths? We were told months ago by the experts that if we had 40 positive tests, Per uh, hundred thousand, then that was the danger point. We're over double that now. Uh, on Friday, we were at ninety-seven uh, above. You know, more than more than double. Yet, uh, yeah, and we're, so we're reaping the the results of that uh, of that inaction. And where's the new action going to uh, come from uh, besides uh, shutting down the whole province? And speaking of of shutting down the whole province, uh, are you optimistic about that, David? No, <laughs> not really. But that, but I'm not a scientist, and I'm not an expert. I'm basing it on the past. Is that there? First of all, the the link between um, lockdown and uh, amelioration of the conditions um, is intuitive and logical. I'm not challenging it, but it has never really been quantified. They've never been to show anywhere in the world a direct relationship between the amount of lockdown and and the reduction in cases, except in very broad terms over time. So I don't know. uh, And then you look at all the anomalies. You can go into this kind of store, but not that kind of store. Uh, They haven't made it easier for themselves in dealing with a very uh, volatile, unpredictable, unprecedented problem. And they need sympathy for that. But on the other hand, 
the information flow has been so contradictory and so all over the map that it's difficult to have any confidence that they're doing more than just, you know, panicked response and hope for the best. It doesn't uh, give us a lot of confidence because uh, there's been uh, no evidence that uh, uh, here in, in Ontario that being firm around lockdowns in various parts of the province has really been able to uh, stem it. Our population situation is different. Our density is uh, different. It's, it's almost like a Hail, Hail Mary attempt when the very you know specific things that could have been done, if we look, for instance, back at long-term care, if they had improved the availability and use of uh, PPE by frontline uh, workers, if they had improved the testing uh, uh, for people getting access to long-term uh, care homes from the uh, outside, if they had done these specific things earlier, uh, the suggestion is that would have made a big, uh, a big difference. But as David said, uh, there's no real proof that in our situation here, uh, this will have any effect except look like an attempt by the government to, to, uh, to do something when actual the detail of, uh, of work across the province is what really would have made a difference and hopefully still can if they'd wake up and do it. And remember that the the track record of modeling in general, I'm not talking about this specific model, uh, has not been sterling during this pandemic. The early models, uh, the very first one from um, uh, from England was the United States would have 2 million deaths by now. So, I mean, some of these models have been just, uh, you know, complete f- fiction, and they don't really inspire a lot of confidence. I agree. I think, though, my own opinion is that lockdown will work because intuitively, if you have fewer people uh, congregating, you're going to get fewer infections. So I'm not opposed to it, but it, it doesn't have the precision. And all along, all the way through this pandemic, they have presented a degree of scientific certainty that has later been undermined uh, by actual experience. And I think that's you know, part of the problem that it just doesn't look like it's a very uh, well-known, well-established, credible set of facts that they're working from. That was Libby Zneimer's conversation with an abbreviated Zoomer squad this past Monday. David Kravitz, vice president of Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, interim chief policy officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer Magazine, was on vacation. Listen for the return of the Zoomer squad on Fight Back on Monday, January 4th. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, how to vaccinate all Canadians against COVID-19. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now to what will be an ongoing issue during 2021. The logistics of getting the population vaccinated against COVID-19 and overcoming vaccine hesitancy. 
which was identified as a top threat to global health by the World Health Organization last year. The people in that category include diehard anti-vaxxers, people who are undecided, and others who are worried about COVID-19 vaccines because they are so new. A recent Stats Canada study shows two-thirds of Canadians are either very likely or somewhat likely to get a COVID-19 vaccine, 10% are undecided, and 14% won't be getting one. Earlier this month, Libby spoke about this issue with Jean-Paul Soucy, a PhD student at the Dalla-Lana School of Public Health. And Dr. Ray Dianandon, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. It's going to be a problem eventually. Up front, not that big a deal because our biggest challenge for the next couple of months is going to be meeting demand, which will be sky high. But eventually, if our goal is herd immunity, as it should be, we don't have enough adults in this uh, country uh, to reach herd immunity unless the majority, the vast majority, accept this vaccine. So we think about 70% need to be uh, immune to reach herd immunity. And if we're only testing this vaccine on adults 18 and above, that's like 27 million people, 70% of our population right there. So uh, I think uh, it's going to be an issue eventually. So uh, we have to start thinking about how to communicate risk perception in a rational way now. Jean-Paul Soucy, there's a difference, I guess, between the diehard anti-vaxxers who probably can't be convinced. So first of all, do you agree that they can't be convinced? Uh, what do you say to people who are sort of on the fence? How do you get them on board? Yeah, I think the number one thing here is that this vaccine is going to be approved in a much faster timeline than a typical vaccine. And I think the number one thing we have to do is communicate why that is, because, you know, I think some people are looking at this and saying, well, maybe they're cutting corners. Uh, and in fact, that's that's actually not the case. But I think in terms of science communication, the number one thing we can do is explain why this vaccine uh, was much much faster approved than than a typical vaccine. That is very much out there. It, it's just a matter of who is paying attention. I mean, how do you get their attention? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think it could be something that we could address in some more mainstream figures. So, for example, in the press conferences uh, from our various public health leaders, uh, as well as perhaps uh, people who are science communicators on social media could do uh, a campaign in order to explain uh, why this is and and really get that message across from all different venues so that we can have all different uh, populations exposed to this message. Because I, I think if you're someone who, who doesn't know a lot about how the vaccine process works, then I think there's a uh, it's entirely reasonable, entirely understandable that people would be uh, would be confused by by why this is uh, such a fast process. It's important that we're honest. We have to be transparent about this. This is a very safe vaccine. All signs point to that fact. But when scaled up to hundreds of millions of people, if not billions globally, a large number are going to get sick from it. That's the law of large numbers. And we can't hide from that fact and try to brush it under the rugs. We have to accept that upfront and express this truth to the world. So our only path forward is transparency. It's an all-hands-on-deck endeavor. All the communicators have to be part of this, including creating a centralized resource for myth-busting, because we're up against a, an active attempt to create noise in the system, including a lot of vaccine myths. Uh, this morning, I spent my time just combating some of them. And um, I think the more we are open with what we do know and don't know, and indeed what the risk actually is, the more buy-in there's going to be. 
the cavalry is coming, but the night is long and dark, and we should buckle down for some hard times before the uh, salvation arrives. Okay, that's poetic. And uh, Jean-Paul Soucy? Yeah, I guess I'll just say uh, very quickly, the reason why this vaccine was so fast was because, one, we had the funding in place. That was not a problem. Two, regulatory oversight uh, regulators made this a top priority, and so they dedicated extra time and staff to make sure we didn't have long periods of waiting. Uh, three, we had a ton of volunteers. These trials were way bigger than, than a typical trial, and so they could get results faster. And four, the fact that, that COVID-19 had such a high prevalence meant that these trials uh, could actually uh, reach their endpoint, which is comparing the efficacy in those who got the vaccine versus the placebo much faster than a typical trial. Jean-Paul Soucy, a PhD student at the Dalla-Lana School of Public Health, and Dr. Ray Dianandon, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Earlier this month, Health Minister Christine Elliott said the province was looking into providing people with vaccine passports once they get their COVID-19 shots. The premier was clear in saying the government won't and cannot make the COVID vaccine mandatory, but he said people may need to be vaccinated for international travel, attending events like live concerts, and perhaps for some workplaces. Libby was joined by two experts to sort out the legalities and ethical questions around a COVID-19 passport. Carrie Bowman is a bioethicist and assistant professor of family and community medicine at the University of Toronto. And Kara Zweibel is director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I'm concerned about the fact that we're, we're doing so much speculation about, you know, what's going to happen with the vaccine when we're really quite a long way off from it being actually accessible to uh, the vast majority of people. And I think the concern that comes up with something like a, a vaccine passport is that while the government is saying this isn't mandatory, they are sort of saying, you know, but... If you choose not to have it, you're going to face some significant consequences. And so we're going to do something to sort of facilitate other groups, you know, corporations and, um, and private actors to, to restrict things to, uh, to people who, who have been vaccinated. And, um, and that makes me concerned for, for the discriminatory impacts that people will face who um, can't access the vaccine or who, who are not able to, to have the vaccine for, for health reasons. There are governments or, or uh, whatever bodies that are totally uh, outside of Ontario's control that can impose these? Sure. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it, it shouldn't, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be available to someone to, to demonstrate that they've had the vaccine if they have. I mean, you know, when my children are vaccinated, I the doctor signs their, their immunization form that, so that I can show the school. Um, but this idea of sort of a, a vaccine passport that, you know, might be used to 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 grant access to some places or, or deny access to, to places. Um, it's concerning and it's, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit sci-fi at this point. We don't really know what it means. There's also just a lot we don't know about the vaccine right now. We, we, um, I mean, we, we know that it's largely or it appears to be largely effective in, in preventing people from, um, from getting the virus, but we, we don't actually know if it's effective in preventing people from spreading it, um, which would seem to be the main reason you'd be looking for for proof before, you know, letting someone, it's, someone it's, access it, the service. 
it will be multiple vaccines. Uh, Carrie Bowman, do you see this idea of a vaccine passport the same way as a dangerous thing? Well, you know, I see it as kind of mixed, right? And, you know, whether we like it or not, I think it's going to happen. And I think in most cases, market forces will drive this. Um, you know, when we look at travel, you know, I, I work overseas a lot. There's lots of countries in the world. You're not going to set foot in there unless you've got a yellow fever vaccination. So those types of things are coming. But, but you know, I, I think our government's breathing a sigh of relief where they can say, you know, we're not going to do this, but be prepared that this is likely going to happen. But I would agree fully. We're really speculating. Um, you know, and again, you know, the nature of the vaccine itself, how many vaccines... I do think it's coming, and I do think that whenever you create an in-and-out group, you've got concerns with justice. Uh, You know, there are people that are immunocompromised that can't take vaccines. There's a very, very remote element of religious uh, choice with this. I've been trying to study it. It's it's not any of the mainstream religions at all, but that wouldn't take a vaccine. But look, any Canadian that says, I'm completely opposed to this, I don't ever want it, it does raise ethical questions. Um, but again, I, you know, I don't know how, uh, hopefully we'll soon hear from a legal person, you know, can a restaurant easily say this? I, I think they probably could, but I don't know. Uh, sports, you know, theaters. So what we may be looking at, let's imagine June, July, August, like summer of 21, we just don't know. I, I do think, you know, the, the majority of people are, are, are interested in, in the greater good and, um, and I, I guess I, I wouldn't want us to get into a situation where we're, we're completely sort of directing the narrative at the small minority of people who, who aren't, uh, who don't have that best interest at heart. Um, and, and I do worry about this passport idea, especially when we don't, when we don't know yet exactly what the impacts of the vaccine are. So I think it's really important that we gather that knowledge and that we, we make policy based on the evidence that we have. Kara Zweibel, director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and Carrie Bowman, bioethicist and assistant professor of family and community medicine at the University of Toronto. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. John in Pickering phoned about what he sees as a necessity for a COVID-19 vaccine passport. I, I am a vaxxer and I really believe uh, passports are a great idea. I think it should be linked as an addition to the health card that we all have. That way you're not having something separate to have in your wallet. That way it can be swiped by airlines, border crossings, V-rails, medical offices, whatever. The other thing I think is... Um, Regarding the uh, workplace, I think it should be mandatory for the workplace. I think it's a health and safety issue. Just as you cannot get on a construction site without a hard hat and safety boots, this is just as important for everybody in the workplace. Murray in Malton called to talk about what he sees as an easy solution to ensure nursing home workers have the best protective equipment. 
Because there's uh, still some long-term care homes not uh, distributing the PPE properly, I think Doug Ford should do something to address that. Maybe even send out a van with uh, PPE in it and just give it to the, the employees of these long-term homes so they're they're properly protected and they're protecting the, the people who live there. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Tom in Toronto. My mother lives in a Baycrest, a long-term care facility in yep. the, uh, the old age home. And I can tell you, they're actually doing a pretty fantastic job in the way that they're um, maintaining distancing and controlling activity, or entry rather. I'm a, I'm a caregiver, so I'm tested every seven days, and I have to follow a very strict protocol. Uh, they've done a great job. I, I know, unfortunately, a lot of them haven't. My comment is that I, I, I'm hearing so many people blame this particular government for what's going on. And certainly, the government is responsible for hopefully, hopefully making changes. But this is a problem, I believe, that's a lot older than a year and a half or however long Doug Ford has been in government. This, this problem goes back many, many years. So, so to lay the blame strictly at the feet of this government... I think is unfair. I think you've got to look at the Wynn government and the McGinty government and the federal government uh, of the last 10 to 20 years. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And have your say anytime on our fightback voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.